Welcome to Don't Box Me In, the show that features conversations with people from all walks of life, talking about their extraordinary experiences and inspirational messages. Now, here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, 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 and welcome back to this week's edition of Don't Box Me In. I am your host, Lana Reed. You know, everyone has struggles in life, but... But my guest today has had life challenges that no one should have to bear. Teresa Joyce was born the middle child of three, and happy memories are something that Teresa holds in very short supply. The change in Teresa's life began when her mother met the man that would become her stepfather, and they moved to a new city with promises of a new life. But instead, it became a prison for Teresa. Teresa has written a book titled There's a Fine Line and is here today to share her story with us. Teresa, it is with pleasure and much admiration that I welcome you to Don't Box Me In. Welcome, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Lon. It's great to be here. Thank you. So, um, you know, with most people, when I have authors on this show, I take the time to try to read most of their book before, you know, I, I sit down and talk to them. And, and today is no different. So I was reading your book and I found myself... Um, you know, while trying to, you know, get through it, having to kind of set the book down from time to time because it is is just so full of emotion, um, and uh, it's it's so much to absorb. So um, I guess we're going to start off at the beginning and and work our way forward here. Uh, so let's just start there. Where where were you born, Teresa? I was born in, in England in a little town called Huddersfield in Yorkshire. Okay, okay. So I do want to mention everybody, you know, she is, you know, taking the time to be with us all the way from England, and I want to thank you for that. So um, your father died when you were very young. Uh, what was the relationship like between your mom and your dad? It wasn't very good. Um, he died. He was killed in a road accident when I was three. Uh, he was an alcoholic drunk, um, to be honest with you, Lana. He used to be working away all week when he came home. Um, he would go straight to the pub. And that's where he was spend, spend most of the evening till he came home um, drunk. If my mum asked him for money for food for us, herself and his children, it was usually a slap in the face or a boot in the stomach. So he wasn't a very nice guy. Mm, mm. And you said he was three years old when you passed? When he, when he passed away? Yeah, I was three years old, yeah. Oh, you were three years old. Okay. So um, after uh, he passed away, you guys went to stay with your grandparents, correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, when my mother married my father, he was working away on, on the roads. He was Irish. He came over from Ireland. He could only actually speak Gaelic when he first came here. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the Irish, I think, built most of the roads in England. Um, so he was on a, a week away, about 200 miles away from where he lived, um, on the roads, working on these roads. And he met my mother there. Um, she met married as a whirlwind romance. That obviously, she didn't think through very well. Moved up to his hometown when he left. So... Um, she was 200 miles away from her family and anyone she knew. So uh, when he died, we all had to sort of pack up everything and moved it down back to my grandparents' house. Okay. Were, was the relationship with your grandparents and your mother, you know, a good one? Or or what do you yeah, remember absolutely. about your Okay. Okay. So yeah, um, you have fond memories of your grandparents then? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, my grandmother died when I was 13, but uh, my grandfather, I was a lot older than that when he died. And we are very close. When I was in the RAF, um, for the latter part of my time in the RAF, I was at a station which was only about 40 minutes drive from him, so I used to go up and see him most weekends. So, yeah, we, he was great. Okay, okay. Now, you you do have to uh, remember here that uh, some of my audience is very American, so you were in the, what is that again? It's the RAF, it's the Royal Air Force. Okay, Royal Air Force, okay. And uh, so how long was it before, um, or in between the time that your father passed away and your mother remarried? Um, I was seven when she remarried. Okay, so she was single for about four years. Did she um, work or anything? How did she manage to take care of you guys? Oh uh, yeah, she had three jobs really. Um, she did paper around in the morning, six o'clock in the morning. I remember going with her and sitting on the trolley where she used to pull the papers around. Uh, then she would get us ready for school. She'd work all day in her laundry, um, then sort of get us from school after that and feed us. Then my grandparents would watch us when she went while she went to work once more. And she'd go and work in a fish and chip shop sort of all evening, and that was really her life for those four years. Okay, okay. How did, how did she end up meeting your stepfather? Um, she, there's a town in England called Plymouth, which is the base where, um, where the Navy, the Royal, Royal Navy, um, they train out of, and it's about 20 miles from my mother's home. Um, there was never anything in where she lived. It was a very small village. There was no picture house, nothing like that, or no cinema. And she'd gone up to 
to watch a film with a with her cousin, and he was um, around uh, in the town centre there because there, there was so many um, you know service people in there, and he was one of them at the time. He was in the navy. Okay. Okay. Do you you know what was her attraction to him at that particular time? Um, he was twelve years younger than her. Very suave. Uh, very good looking. Um, you know, he would make you think that black was white, even if you're looking at it. <laughs> Uh, he was very charismatic. Everybody liked him, and um, and he, you know, the last time I saw him, which was many years ago now, was people still thought of him like that because he just had a gift of the gab and very believable. Okay, good talker, good talker. Okay, yeah. Women fall for those kinds all the time, don't we? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, okay. So I'm assuming that it was a quick romance with them. Uh, did she date him long before they settled down? No, it was very quick. Um, she sort of told him she had three children, and as I understand, he didn't quite believe that. So he turned up at her house the following weekend. They'd come, come down the train. Uh, and I think they were married in about ten weeks. And then him, he bought himself out of the Navy so he could leave. Um, then we moved back to where I live now in Bristol, uh, which is about another 150 miles away from where my mother was. So it was his hometown. So even though we met him more or less where my mum uh, was living, because he was in the Navy, it wasn't his hometown. So when he came out, we had to come to Bristol, which again was a new move for everybody because we didn't know anyone. Uh, and we had to move in with his mother and share a bedroom altogether until we were found a, a property of our own. Okay. So your mother had no friends or family there where you guys moved to? No, she didn't know anybody. Um, literally, we moved, she moved up uh, into his mother's home. We were there for about eight months before a uh, property was found for us to go to. Uh, but no, she didn't know anyone but him when, when she when we left and came here. Okay, just just curious, did did his mother treat you guys nicely or no? Um, do you know, I've been asked that before, and I think it was a little bit with disdain. Um, I don't think she re- ever really liked the fact that he'd married someone with three children, oh. uh, and you know, I, I always thought that all the time she was living. I, I always sort of felt that little bit of edge there. Okay, okay. Did uh, your mother and your stepfather ever have kids of their own? Well, they tried. My mother had five uh, miscarriages, and the last one, the consultant said to her that, you know, she needed to um, be sterilized because then if she had another one, it could really, you know, make her very, very unwell. So she had uh, to sterilized, which meant she could no longer have children, which was, you know, I know she was very upset about because she wanted his baby, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. D- does your stepfather have any children of his own? He does now, but only after um, the whole family was blown apart as, uh, as it in the book and he, was, he now lives in Germany mm-hmm. and he has a son now I think um, he's about 17 not that I've seen him and I haven't seen my stepfather that long either but yeah I, I know he has a child yeah okay he does have one okay so um, when do you recall things starting to change um, between the relationship between your mother and your stepfather I don't think it ever really changed between them until it sort of changed between us um I mean, he started abusing me when I was seven, um, and that went on for a period of time until I was about 14. Uh, and that, for some reason, that I, I went to the Air Force as soon as I could go, as soon as I was legally able to, uh, so which was just before my 16th birthday. Um, the abuse was all suppressed at that time. I just buried it in the back of my mind. Um, but I came out of the Air Force, married myself, and, you know, things had moved on, which I'm not trying to run ahead here, but trying to explain to you how it was. Uh, I then I was then abused by him for a period of four years through blackmail and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. That he sort of had hold of me, and she never really knew anything until the time where I could take no more after four periods of an overdose, and that's when she found out. So well, that's that's when he um, told her his version of, which wasn't the truth, but that's when she found out. And I don't think she ever stopped even loving him after that. Wow, wow, so. Seven years old, he starts to abuse you, and, and like you said, you weren't really aware of that until after the fact. You had kind of blocked the memory. Um, but when it started to come back to you, if you don't mind sharing or if you can share, what what do you recall that abuse to be? Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit – when you remember as an adult, because obviously I'd suppressed those memories, when you remember as an adult, it's very difficult to understand how you would have dealt or felt about those emotions as a child. Um, I think um, it was only because of the abuses as an adult that uh, there was a certain thing that he kept saying to me. He kept sending me letters daily, three or four days sometimes, with this, um, you know, saying the same thing within the letter. 
I always knew it meant something, but I could I never knew for a long, long time. And then one day I realized and it was a bit like, you know, taking your finger out the dam because um, mm-hmm. everything came flooding back in that moment in time. And I was finding it very difficult to process. I even didn't believe there were my own thoughts or memories. Uh, but when you actually deal with that, then you're dealing with it with the minds of, of an adult. Uh, and the memories are of, or of, a, of a child, and that you know, it's very confusing. And sometimes you end up dealing with those things with the child within because it's never healed. If that makes sense to you. Mm, yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I I remember him sort of coming up at night when everybody was asleep and coming into my bedroom and sexually abusing me, telling me, you know, it was okay, it was a um, it was a secret. He loved me, you know, and I was doing the right thing for everyone. I mean, I, I suppose lots of your audience out there are listening um, that have been abused. That is, it's the same old story, you know, the things mm-hmm. they tell us to, to get what they want, really, or to keep us quiet. Okay, got you. Now, you you are the middle of three. Um, I'm just curious, are there any other females in your siblings, or were you the only female? Um, no, I was the only um, My sister, I've got a sister, there's three of us. Um, she's two years older than me, uh, a very different person than me, and my brother also is very different from myself. And I think my stepfather knew that right at the beginning, even though I was the most spirited of the children. I think for him, that was more of a challenge um, because, you know, he's the type of guy, if he wanted a car, it had to be a sports car. If he wanted a horse, it had to be a you know, racing stallion. Mm-hmm. So it, it was to him, I was, the, um, I was the challenge to break. That's really why I think he chose me. Yeah, that, that was kind of my, my next question was, you know, how was it that he, he chose you to hone in on it, especially if there was another female um, there in the household. But, you know, like you said, it was the, the challenge of it all and, you know, let me let me break the thoroughbred, so to speak. So, wow! And this went on for till you were fourteen. You said, yeah, I was fourteen when it stopped. I'm around fourteen, fourteen and a half, something like that. Um, that's a bit sketchy with myself because there are some things I still don't remember um, involving my childhood. I, I remember snippets, and as years by go by, I, I remember more. You know, I sort of remember about ninety percent now, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I remember one day saying to my stepfather. Um, you know, I wasn't going to live under his rules anymore. And I didn't really know what I meant by that when I said it. Um, and he said to me, if you don't live under my rules, you don't live here. And I said, that's fine. So I got on a public transport and I went down and joined the Royal Air Force. And um, I was gone two months before my 16th birthday and I never went home again. Wow. Wow. Do you think, now you mentioned that your mother didn't know anything at the time. Do you think your brother and sister were aware that something was different? No, nobody knew. Um, it, it was just us. Um, nobody knew. In fact, when it all came to the fore, when my mother passed, because I wouldn't write the book until she had, um, this, the problem was, is my stepfather had um, coerced, uh, blackmailed me, you know, threatened those I've loved. I had shotguns in my mouth, um, you know, the parking outside of people's houses that I cared about, that he was going to kill them. And he'd have the gun. He had many guns. Uh, so he controlled me like that through sort of pressure. Uh, and when it came to the four years, when I was an adult, that abuse got um, very, very intense. I, as I said earlier, I took an overdose and I went into hospital. And when I came out, I sort of said to him, look, I can't do this anymore. So you're going to have to do what you're going to have to do. I, I couldn't protect my mother anymore, which is why I'd gone along for so long. So mm. I was trying to protect her because of her past previous life experiences and marriage. Uh, I thought that was fine. He was going to sort of leave it there. He took her away for a week's holiday um, and basically told her while on that holiday that we were have been having an affair and it's been me that instigated it. Um, mm. If she left him, then he was going to kill herself. Um, I mean, he took her to this out-of-the-way cottage where there was no landline phones, there was no cell phone signal, she couldn't drive. Um, and he said, you know, if you don't stay with me, I'm going to kill myself now and you'll never be able to get to anyone to get me help and I'm going to die. Um, and the next thing I knew was a phone call from my mother from a service station, um, a gas station, saying, are you having a fairy stepfather? And, I mean, I didn't know what to say. I just held the phone. Um, and I you know, I didn't know what to say. Physically, I couldn't even open my mouth. It was so difficult because that wasn't at all what had been happening. Mm-hmm. Um, she then said she was returning back to our hometown to come and talk to me. And I think that was the longest hour and a half of my life. <laughs> Wow, wow. That is so much to digest, so much to digest. Um, Teresa, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, uh, we're going to uh, kind of peel some way through this story. Okay. All right.
Let's return to Don't Box Me In with your host, Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Today I am with Teresa Joyce. She's the author of There's a Fine Line. And uh, before the commercial break, we were, um, you know, peeling away at uh, some of the story of her life and uh, the dysfunctions that her stepbrother uh, brought into her world. And uh, you had mentioned that you finally did manage to break away by leaving the home at uh, 16 and uh, joining the Royal Air Force, correct? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So how long were you away from home? I mean, you left at 16. When did you encounter him again? Um, Well, I met my husband um, when I was home on leave, um, staying with a friend. So he wasn't actually in the Air Force with myself. He was a civilian. So I had to come out at that time in England. Um, I don't know about the state, but if you got married and you were a female, you, were, you couldn't, your spouse couldn't join you. Um, they have changed the law now, obviously, because of sexuality and the issues that throws up. So I, I left the Air Force and got married. I was 21 then. Um, okay. I came out uh, and, yeah, everything was, if you put normal, I don't even know if you can even put that word mm-hmm. against this story, mm-hmm. but... I mean, he started to abuse me again when I was 35, when I was already married. I had a son, um, you know, he was about 14-ish, 13 now 14. Um, and up until that point, I hadn't remembered anything about the childhood abuse. I'd been away, it was, you know, it was, and it was just like every other family, I suppose. You know, we went up on the weekends, went out for meals, we went on holidays as a group. Mm-hmm. Um, um, until that point in time in 94 when uh, he decided to, you know, he wanted me and there was nothing that was going to stop him. Okay, so from the time you were 21 when you met your husband until the time you were 35, we can say you you somewhat had a very peaceful life then. Yeah, like everybody else is, you know, ups and downs, but um, yeah, just a normal life. Okay, and you were interacting with him, like you said, you know, family functions and stuff, um, and there was no indication that he wanted you sexually like that during that time? No, absolutely not. Um, wow, you know, wow. my, my my brother, uh, sorry, my mother and I were very close, closer than my other siblings uh, were to her. Uh, my stepfather, my husband worked for him. My brother worked for him. I worked for him, um, you know, part-time because I also taught aerobics and weights. Um, so I worked from part-time. Uh, it was a family sort of unit, really, where, uh, you know, everybody went on holiday together. Um, it probably, mm-hmm. you know, he had a business. It, picture postcard, I suppose, what everyone's mm-hmm. life um would be like, nice to be like, but uh, that, you know that it was all a lie. Really, it was just waiting in the wings, festering and waiting. That's that's interesting. That's a long, long time there for that to kind of, you know, stew, um, waiting to happen. So, um, 1994 um, is when uh, I guess he starts again. How how is it that this all starts to happen? Up, uh, partake. Um, it was very strange. I was at work one day and I had to stay on late because I used to do the credit control and the company was in a bit of trouble with them um, getting people to pay their bills type thing. Uh, and he just told me that he was in love with me, always had been, um, and that he wanted to be with me and, you know, we could run away together. My son would learn to call him dad. Hmm. Um, it was just like this guy was standing in front of me that I thought, um, I don't even know who you are. Um, he tried to kiss me, um, it then became quite threatening. Um, and that's when it became um, a road of hell for me for four years because he, he knew he couldn't control me for myself because uh, if he'd have been just threatening me and then it wouldn't have happened. But he knew how much my mother meant, meant mm-hmm. to me and I knew how much he meant to her and the life she'd had previously. Uh, she now had a nice life, a good life, um, and I had this overwhelming um, emotion to protect her uh, and that's what he knew. And he, again, he knew the closeness between me and my mum other than my sister and he knew, you know, the right. He had the right artillery in his arsenal, and he, and he used it. Mm, wow. Reflecting back, um, you know, before that incident happened, where he, you know, he just came out and said it. Was there any kind of small little indications, you know, some flirting or some touching that, you know, you just kind of overlooked or something? No, I, I don't. I don't think there was. Um, he mm. came to my home about a week previously, say for you want for a coffee, and I thought it was quite strange because I'd not long, long left work, where mm-hmm. I'd left him there. Um, and I didn't really know why he came in that day because there wasn't a reason. Um, but I just put it down to, oh, well, you know, he was passing. But no, not until that time. I, I just didn't know. Wow. Wow. So you're now in a situation, situation, you know, you're kind of like the rock and the hard place thing. So you, you start to have this 
relationship with your stepfather uh, in the efforts to protect your mother. Um, I mean, did it progress pretty fast or, I mean? Yeah, it was like a snowball. It wouldn't stop running, you know. I mean, he he was threatening not only to protect my mother, but he was also threatening my, my husband, my son, um, my siblings, my friends. Um, he would... He went to my friend's house because I went there one evening and I wouldn't meet him. And he went to her, her father's antique shop the next day and he smashed the whole sh- and broke her father's arm in two places. Um, so everything, he was hurting people around me that he knew I cared about because direct attack on myself wouldn't have worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was very much, um, yeah, it was it was full on. It was it was crazy, you know. He'd fall in my car because, as I said, I didn't work that job only. Um, I'd, he'd be my wing mirror. He'd be turning up in my aerobics class. He would be on the phone all day. Um, I had a cell phone, which was for work. I sometimes had 90 calls from him a day. Um, hmm. He would write me three or four letters a day. Uh, uh, it, it was just so intense. I didn't seem to be able to breathe or have any time, you know, to look around. Uh, and I had no one to help, you know, mm-hmm. so I was sort of trying to swim upstream and, you know, not doing well. I'm curious, you know, you were married at that particular time. What kept you from telling your husband anything? I did tell him. After about uh, six months, I told him, um, and he did nothing, really. He just said to me, "Um, the business is in trouble. You know, he'll get over this. Like, I was some type of crutch for him to, you know, make sure he didn't lose a business. And I I was really overreacting. Um, I know it sounds bizarre, you know, because I didn't really know what to say to him at that time, but... uh, Needless to say, I left him sometime after that, uh, and he stayed on working with my stepfather after that point. You know, so I don't really know. He was he was just it wasn't there. Mm-hmm. That's wow. You expect your spouse to be your your main supporter there. Um, that had to be a bit much to take in spite of everything else that was going on. Wow. Yeah, I mean, he used to ring me all time during the night, during the day, all the time, and the phone was next to my husband's side of the bed. He would wake me and say that he wanted to talk to me. Um, I remember going down the middle of the night for a coffee and he would be standing in the window staring in at me. Um, he would follow me in the car. He would get me in the office when there's nobody there. I've had the shotgun put literally inside my mouth. Um, I've had him outside of my friend's house. He rang me and said I had 10 minutes to get there. Otherwise, when she came out, he was going to shoot her. I think I went three, four, three or four red lights trying to get there and he was actually outside of her, her home with a gun. And... Uh, when I actually went up to the window, it was like I didn't even know I was. Um, he was he was like strangely look, looking at me. Oh hi, I didn't know I see you today. That type of thing. Mm. It was just like he he was deranged, and and you couldn't you, you you wouldn't you knew, and I always knew there was never a threat that he wouldn't you know go through with. If mm-hmm. he said to do something, then I couldn't think no, he won't do that because I knew he would. Wow, that's. You know, wow. It, you know, you're already having to put up with um, sexual abuse from a step-parent, but then to have the, the violent element, you know, the psychotic, deranged element along with it, uh, you know, that, that is emotionally very stressful. I mean, that would, that's a bit much for anybody to have to take. Yeah, and, you know, I really went crazy. Um, I mean, I remember I picked up my car one day because I bought my car through my company. And the day I bought it, I went to teach an aerobics class in, the, in high school. And when I came out, he, he'd actually trashed my car with a sledgehammer, every panel, everything. Um, he wasn't there, but I, I knew it was him. Mm-hmm. I ran the garage and said, you know, they had to come pick it up. And then bizarrely, uh, he just paid for a new one. And I didn't have to use insurance. It was all a bit like he would do something to me or, you know, do something to somebody else just to make sure that I would keep having sexual relations with him. It's a little bit like saying, I have control of you, and this is why and how, and there's no one to help you. Yeah, I think you, you see a lot of that in um, domestically abusive relationships. You know, there's the, you know, the abuse, and then there's the, you know, oh, I'm sorry, gift, let me make it up to you. And then, you know, that continues with some more abuse down the line. It's kind of like that cycle of of the abuser, the mentality of the abuser. But, you know, that's, you know, to... to cause damage to your car and oh you know let me pay for it and you know let's continue on like we were like nothing happened um you know that's uh the psychologically damaging i mean just wow 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 so how long did this go on for a period of four years um and then one day i couldn't take any more and um 
I'd he went away to a health center um, for a weekend away to get his head straight. So he told me went to have some treatment, and he rang me in the middle of the night there um, to say uh, he was basically saying to me to go and sit in a corner, and he was to come to me through the telephone, his soul and his you know his being, he would transport himself to me in that room, and he was talking like someone deranged. Nothing mm-hmm. made any sense, mm-hmm. um, and. I just said, I can't do this anymore, and I put the phone down. Um, and I just grabbed a bottle of booze and some tablets, and I got in my car, and I just drove out um, to somewhere where I, I shouldn't have ever been found, and I needed to take, take all of it. Mm-hmm. And um, I passed out, and then basically he found me. Because he'd been stalking me all the time, he actually found me and took me to the hospital. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> bit of a kick you know the, yeah. from the-, <laughs> the guy that's driving you crazy is the guy that finds you and saves you that's that's really uh ironic there um wow Teresa, we're going to take another break and i'm going to sit here and digest this story for a little bit longer but to hang in there we'll be right back right after this Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back. Today I am with the author of There's a Fine Line, Miss Teresa Joyce. And uh, today we've been talking about her life um, and the overwhelming story that she does have. And uh, right before the commercial break, you were telling us after four years of this abuse by your stepfather, you tried to commit suicide, and he was actually the one who had uh, saved you or found you and took you to the hospital. What, did your mother at this particular time know that he was um, involved with you, or was it after this the fact? It was after the fact. Um, he rang my mother and said that I don't know quite what he said to her that um, – he found when I've taken tablets and I never know to say what he told her the reasoning I never said anything to her but when I got to the hospital he stole my clothes and my, and my cell phone and everything so I couldn't get away um, and that was the time when I sort of said to him uh, you can do what you like now there's nothing I can't take it anymore I've tried to protect all these people and I can't you know I'm losing myself mm-hmm. um, so if you know if you're going to do something then do it mm-hmm. um, and he left me alone for a few weeks and then decided to um, arrange what happened in his, his own mind to be reality and decided to tell my mother he drove up and down the country 150 miles either way to relatives of mine to tell them all the same thing. We were having an affair and that I was leaving with him, uh, which he came back the next day and came and told me he'd done this. And I tried to call them and none of them would take my call because um, they, they actually believed him and um, I, I didn't speak to they wouldn't speak to me for over five years and I don't really speak to them now it was only through my mum's funeral she died in 2003 um, that we ever have been sort of close to each other and, and sort of civil I mean after he'd been gone about two years he wrote to my mother um, and told her that what he told her was a lie um, and my version of events was the truth mm. um, and my mother said to me would you like me to tell all these people and it wasn't important to me anymore. You know, to me, they wouldn't listen to me then. They wouldn't even pick up the phone. Uh, and I didn't feel the need for her to sort of tell them anything. You know, I'd been judged already. I didn't feel mm-hmm. that It was like, no, I don't care. Really, it's over. It's done. You know, I mean, you know, wow. So already you're going through the emotional baggage of these years of abuse by your stepfather. And here it is. You can't even get support from your own family. That's... There has to be a bit much. Yeah, it was very difficult. Um, yeah. I mean, I rang my sister three or four times. I rang back, and she just kept picking up the receiver and dropping it. Mm. Um, and that was that, really. And I, I, my mum was in hospital for a month because she had septicemia, and she was on life support for a month before they turned the machines off. And my brother used to come in to see her, and my sister lived away away, so she only came a couple of times. Um, but my brother lived in the town I live in and he wouldn't come into the room to visit my mother unless I left, you know, and that was, and I, I was there eight hours a day. I, I slept there, you know, but so I had, used to have to leave the room for him to even want to walk in there because he believed everything he'd been told. Mm-mm-mm. So after, after the suicide attempt and, and your stepfather tells, 
calls up all your family and your mother and tells them that you were the one who had uh, initiated the relationship and you were going to to leave to be with him. Um, did your mother and him stay together long after that? Yeah, well, it's a strange thing because he he ha- had actually, I think, at that point in time, lost his mind totally. Mm-hmm. He moved out of their bedroom and he moved into uh, another room because they had a big, big property. And he went out and bought all these incense and um, beads and charms and uh, crystal balls and all sorts of mystical type stuff and mm-hmm. sat in his room and um, sort of just did that for about a year. Uh, then he moved away about a hundred mile away, but he from my mother, but he, he hadn't sort of taken everything from the home. Um, and then he went on a trek up uh, into the Indies with where he's where he met the ladies with now because she was there. As well, she was German, German, but on this trek. And then he went to Germany to live with her, and they have a 17-year-old, as I said. But my mother didn't want to lose it. You know, the year that before he left, um, she used to ring me and say, could I come up and talk to him because he won't come out of the room. And, and I didn't want to go. I didn't want to talk to him, but she'd be crying on, on the phone saying she thought he was doing something. And uh, I'd have to do the 40-mile or 40-minute round trip um, to go and make sure he was all right. And, I mean, the, the last thing I wanted to do was make sure he was all right, but she was asking me, and I didn't know what else to do. So your mother's aware that he's having or had a relationship with you. He's mm-hmm. moved He's moved away. He's moved out of her bedroom, but she still calls you to come and talk to him? Yeah, I mean, when she arrived, um, I mean, I love my mother beyond anything, beyond my own life, but I think she was so... Um, in love or controlled by this man, um, I find it very difficult, especially when I was going through counselling, to accept that maybe she did know these things and that um, she didn't protect me. That was a real big one mm-hmm. to, to sort of get through. But um, when she drove back that time, when he told her sort of away at that cottage, um, she drove to my home, and more or less the first thing she said to me was that why can't we all live in, you know, move into a house together? And I, I hmm. couldn't believe what she said. Uh, and I just said, I can't do that. Um, and then, you know, she would ring me after that point. Um, she would ring me every day and, uh, she wants me to tell her graphically what he'd done to me. And mm-hmm. I, I, I obviously didn't want to go there, but, um, I was sort of, she would sort of drag it out of me. I, I guess I did because she, um, she was in pain and I thought it was helping her, but it came to a point where I could no longer do it. So I said to her one day, I can't do this anymore. Um, if every time we talk, this is all you want to know, then I can't talk to you. Uh, and it was over a month that I didn't speak to her, but I loved her that much that after that month I had to contact her, you know, and it did carry on, but it sort of subsided and eventually it stopped. But yeah, I don't know whether it was part of her um, healing process, but she became very, very much wanted to sort of be in on what happened and where and when and, you know, and things like that. Um, and the day... She died. I went to her house to clean the house out. And he, she still had letters from him from Germany. With, he sent her pictures of this boy, this child that he had, which was quite upsetting, I would have thought, for her because she couldn't have one with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and his photograph from when he was in the Navy next to her bed, all the letters he'd written next to her bed. Um, so, you know, she, that was a long, long time after. Um, I don't think she ever stopped loving him. I'm still stuck at the after she finds out your stepfather is is having an affair with you or abusing you sexually, that she asked for you to all move in together. I'm I'm still <laughs> sorry. I'm still stuck there. That that is that's very deep. That's very that's that's a lot to kind of comprehend there. Um, and like you said, you know, she's trying to probably hold on to her relationship. She's trying to, you know, do her best in her own mental illness to kind of make everything cohesive. But as a mother, I'm just thinking there is this, this protective mama bear thing that we go into and the response is different when you find out your child is going through these kinds of changes and you would expect, excuse me, all hell to break loose, Mm -hmm. you know, so, um, you know, and, and like you said, you mentioned with your therapy, that, that is something that you have to kind of deal with and put in place. Like my, my own mother didn't make the proper attempts to protect me throughout all this, this stuff. Uh, That's crazy. You know, um, and it's like everything, um, gets, 
mingle into one. I got so confused with everything. And I was just existing. Mm-hmm. I was just getting up each day and doing, going through the motions. I mean, I had two jobs. I had a husband. I had a son. I had a house. You know, I had everything mm-hmm. to do. And I was just getting up in the morning and trying to be okay until the evening. Um, and then in 1998, um, I had an accident. I had to retire from work. So I injured my back. And up until that point, I think... Even though everything was over, my mother, um, my stepfather's in Germany and my mother was sort of no longer with him. Uh, all the things that had happened to me, I still hadn't dealt with because I just convinced myself I didn't have time. Mm-hmm. The thoughts were in there, uh, but I didn't have time. And then all, all of a sudden, I had all the time in the world. You know, I was at home, all the four walls around me. I, and that was when I had my breakdown, really, where I went into mental health care. Uh, you know, and we're talking for like oh, five years after um, that suddenly uh, I was made to deal with it because I couldn't push it to the back of my mind anymore. Okay. So after you had your uh, suicide attempt, you did not seek any therapy until five years later? Is that what I'm understanding? Well, uh, the next day I had to see um, the psychiatrist because that's what happens in England if you take an overdose you seen immediately the next morning. I went to see a psychiatrist um, on an outpatient about two weeks later. But, you know, he... How the things he knew and what he did, I could never understand because the only person that knew that I had that appointment was my mother. And he turned up at the appointment and sat down beside me and said, I'm sorry, I'm late. I couldn't park the car. <laughs> and I'm, this is what it was like because he would act and say things like we were together and it was normal. And he wasn't really listening to anything I was saying. He was having this role play of his own. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I was just part of and. I was a bit part player and he was, you know, pulling the strings as a puppet really. Mm-hmm. And I, he always used to know where I was and I never used to know how mm-hmm. because he always knew where I was. Mm-hmm. And then it went for a period of time. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't see anybody. Um, I, I'd spoke to my doctor and I was on medication, but uh, I hadn't actually sit, um, found anyone, which is very difficult to do also that uh, I could sort of talk to about it. And that took me an awful long time. In fact, yeah, the probably the last lady I saw was a psychotherapist. And that was um, two years ago. I think that I stopped seeing her then. Uh, and she was the one really that put me through it and got me through it and made me sort of accept most things, which I didn't want to do before. I still had overwhelming um, emotion in me trying to protect my mother, even though she was dead. I couldn't sort of think that she would have allowed that to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Understandable. You know, every every child wants to, you know, protect their mother. You know, that's your mom. Um was there ever a point before your mother passed that she came to terms with what had happened and maybe offered an apology, or what, or did she mentally just always kind of, in her own way, cover up the issue? Well, I guess we went away for a week's holiday with me and my ex-partner um, a year before, before before she died, and um, it was one evening, and I sort of said to her, I need to talk to you about something, um, because she didn't know she never talked about the childhood abuse because I didn't remember until after the adult abuse had taken place and I never talked to her about it at all. And it was that day that I wanted to say, you know, I need to tell you something, I need to ask you something. And she just said, it didn't happen, I don't want to talk about it. Um, so I didn't, and that I couldn't process because that, to my, to my logic, she must have known, otherwise why didn't she want to mm-hmm. talk about it? But, you know, on the other hand, you've got, well, she couldn't have known and you, you had a, a, a fight within your mind I mean, right at the end of the, um, when it was all ending, my stepfather turned up at my house one day. Um, I was in bed with a gastric flu, uh, and my husband came upstairs and gave me a box and said that he'd given it to me for an apology. Uh, I opened it, and it was a finger. You know, he'd literally gone down from his house to the garage. He'd cut off his finger, and he brought it to me. Um, now, when he arrived with this, I, well, you can imagine my, my emotion. Mm. So I picked up the phone to talk to my mother and immediately she answered I knew that she knew and I said do you realize how deranged that is and she said well he's wait, very- wait, 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 hold on Trace hold on a second hold on a second <laughs> wait a minute wait your stepfather cut off his finger he did yes and he brought it to me uh, in a hanky it was wrapped in a hanky and it was an apology he had read somewhere that samurai warriors in Japan if they offended another family then they would cut off a, half of their small finger as an apology so in his, in his head, I don't know quite how, he became this person. And he literally walked from the house, no drugs, no drink, nothing, and severed his finger. He then wrapped his hand, went to hospital, had it stitched, and drove to my house, gave it to my husband. I was ill in bed. Uh, and he took it up, brought it up to me, and I asked him what it was, and he said he didn't know. 
so I opened it and a finger fell out, you know, and I was immediately rushed to the bathroom. I was sick. Uh, I didn't, I don't know where my head was right then. Um, I couldn't even process anything going on around me. Um, my immediate thought was, you know, did my mother know he was going to do this? Mm. And I rang her and I knew immediately she did. And she said to me, well, he's so very particular about his hands. He must be really sorry. And I sort of said to her, mm. do you know what you've just said? Mm. You know, do you really think that's the actions of somebody who's sane? Um, and she couldn't seem to get it. You know, whatever he did, she seemed to have a reason. I guess after so many years with mental illness, it brings about a certain kind of mental illness in you as well. So, I mean, we're going to have to assume that, that that's that stage that your mother was at. That is, um, the story is just, it's just a, a whole series of dysfunctional twists and turns and the fact that you are here today, you know, to be able to, you know, have processed it and, and put it in its proper place is an amazing feat within itself. And I mean, I cannot commend you enough for that. I, mean, I have the ultimate respect for you. Teresa, we're going to take the last commercial break of the day and we'll be uh, right back right after this. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back. Today I am with Miss Teresa Joyce. She is the author of There's a Fine Line. And uh, it's been a very emotionally overwhelming day here. Her story is uh, intense is not even the word to properly describe that. Uh, But uh, we were at the point before the break where um, she's beginning to uh, transition out of this relationship, this toxic relationship with her stepfather. <clears throat> um, I'm wondering, you know, listening to the story, digesting the story, I, I'm kind of, you know, impressed right away with some some residual mental damage that, you know, you have this stepfather figure who causes you pain, and then you're married to a man who doesn't make an attempt to protect you from the pain. Um after that, does it affect your perception of men? Do you think? Is there? Have you put that in perspective? Or, um, yeah, okay. Um, for a long, long time, I, I mean, the three male figures in my life that should have made a difference was my real father, who did what he did to my mother, my my stepfather, as you rightly say, and my husband. And um, I left my husband after two years um, of this all happening, and I actually had a relationship with a lady. Um, it was somebody that I knew all my life. I went to school with since I was seven, and I'd been sharing this with her. She was the only one I could talk about it to or with. Uh, and she told me one day that she'd always been in love with me, um, and we, we went into a tenure relationship. Um, and I guess at that time, I, anything male to me was, um, you know, was something I wanted nothing to do with because I couldn't. Uh, I just blamed the gender. Um, and today, right now, I don't believe that at all. You know, if I was with anyone again, it would be because of who they are, mm-hmm. not their sexuality or, you know, male or female. Um, but yeah, it, for a long, long time, it made me feel as though, you know, anything that was evil, there was a man of all. Gotcha. Understood. I mean, clearly that's understood. That's a whole, whole bunch of years of, of psychological damage at the, the hands of males. So, I mean, it's understandable. So you can get into, therapy or, or somebody to talk to and, and put everything in its proper place so I don't you know I think that's probably a common response from a lot of people that have went through what you went through um, so how are you still currently in therapy or no no um, I do see my therapist because we became friends uh, but no um, I'm I'm um, different now I mean I have I've had total recovery I can deal with things I can write my website, and the writing of my book was a big healing factor for me because I didn't know if I could write that down, um, and that was a suggestion of my therapist, um, basically to help me during sessions so that it was somewhere to put my emotion. Um, it didn't start as a book; it started as me just venting and putting it on on screen, and then it just came to me that it was helping me, and I pushed delete and everything I'd done, and I, I wrote the story. I mean, I walked away. From it so many times, not able to deal with it. I couldn't write for a couple of weeks or sometimes longer um, because it was like I was reliving everything. Um, but I wanted it all to be in there. I didn't want uh, it to be sort of the shadow of what happened. It had to be everything. Um, and when I finished writing, it was just like I closed the ch- that chapter of my life. Um, 
and it, it was just it was just shot I shut, shut the door behind me and I do my website now which is articles of um, emotions and things that I went through whilst the abuse was happening and how how I dealt with those things uh, but I can walk in and out of that pain now I, I give interviews um, and it doesn't hurt me you know mm. I used to have to if I tried to go back into that pain it used to it was very damaging for me for an awful long time but it's not like that anymore I can walk in and out and it doesn't affect me Okay, okay. And you have no contact at all with your stepfather? Is he still with us? Is he still living? Yeah, um, uh, yeah I think he's only about 68 now because he was younger than my mother. I know I don't have any contact at all with him since he left my mum, so 93, something like that. I've not seen him. Okay. And and you did mention previously that the relationship with your own family had been kind of broken up because of him, but I'm curious, do you have any reconnect with your brother and sister? No, um, I guess if we saw each other in the street, they might say hi, but uh, I remember going to the funeral home with my brother because we were both executives to our mother's will um, in the same car and nothing being said. Uh, And he said to me at that point in time, um, I'll never forgive what you did. And I think that was the point I stopped the car and I said, I didn't do anything. Can you get out of the car? And I left him there. Um, And I think that was the only time I ever sort of stood up and said, well, no, you, you can't forgive something that I, I didn't do, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I haven't really spoken to him since. Um, obviously, I say hi, but no, we don't go to family weddings, funerals, parties. There's nothing like that. Wow. So you have a child of your own, so you and your child just really live a very disconnected life from the rest of your family. Yeah, I've got two grandchildren. Um, I've actually got four because my son took on two mm-hmm. elder children with wife that aren't weren't his i've got some um, the two boys that are his who's six and two uh i've got very close friends with people i've sort of known for many years and i guess i truly think myself is right now today is you don't choose your family there's some people within your family you wouldn't choose as friends so that's right um, i can choose just because they're related mean that they're good for me already in my life that's right that's right you know we make our families um I, I'm just wow, Teresa. Just wow, <laughs> what a story. Um, so, how how long has the uh, book been out? Um, it was paperback in 2011, um, and it was published by Chipmunk Publishing, which <clears throat> one of the world's leading mental health care publishers. Um, Jason Pegler, I don't know if any of your readers know him, but uh, he is himself a schizophrenic, and he started uh, this publishing company. Um, it's available widely really um it's even for my web website you can there's a link that takes you straight to amazon to buy it but if you just wanted the book all you had to put in was Teresa joyce there's a fine line and there's many places that you can get it from okay and you, you know you mentioned that you you know you frequently give interviews and, and things like that um do you work with people who have uh, been through similar things as you i i could see you being of help to you know people that have went through um sexual abuse and such yeah i go to groups um not just sexual abuse any type of abuse is, mm-hmm. you know it seems to be a mixed bunch some people are there because of domestic violence but abuse is abuse you know mm-hmm. so um in whatever form and yeah i give talks it's usually small and formal groups because I, I prefer to do that i found that if you're in a room with a lot of people there's always be that one or two at the back that need you and mm-hmm. they won't put their hand up so um i hold i like smaller groups and i always hang around at the end because there's always somebody that wouldn't speak within that time frame that will come <laughs> afterwards. So, um, yeah, uh, I've got a story, actually. Um, I remember when I first um, wrote my book and it came out, I was looking for radio shows to interview me, and I, I wanted to get in touch with this particular host in, in the States, in America there, and I couldn't. It took me forever to find this email address. <laughs> um, eventually, I found it, and I emailed her, and I had an email back immediately, um, and she said to me that, my email at the moment in time had just stopped her killing herself. Um, her son had been going through a very difficult time and he was in that mental health care and there was a lot of stuff going on there with him and he was refusing to go back into the care and she was at that moment in time decided that she could no longer be on this side of life. Um, and her phone beeped and it was my email um, and it stopped her and I rang her and we talked for about an hour and she was uh, in New York um, and eventually her son to go back into to therapy and to this day I think you know it's, it's, it's a lot better for her but uh, to me that one life I know I saved is um, is worth all the pain that uh, I went through 
that's what it's about. That's what it's about. You know, um, our journey in life, as painful and as rough as it, as it is, you know, most often we find that it helps somebody else in their journey. And, uh, you know, that is the reward of personal pain sometimes is that, you know, it can impact somebody else's life. Wow. So uh, what's next for Teresa? What what should we be uh, – what do you want to do later on? What's, what's coming down the pipeline? Um, I guess I'm going to – writing for my website articles um i'm trying to get a group together that uh, gets people with mental health to go out and days together as it was you know just everyone in the same car but um yeah it's uh and maybe another book because i to- totally right within my first book there's nothing really apart from mentioning that it happened of my child abuse so that's another book in the wings and um, i'm stealing myself to, uh, you know maybe that's what i'll do Okay. Okay. So one more time, the book is available on your website and on Amazon, correct? Yes, on Amazon. It's on uh, Sniff Noble. If you just put Teresa Joyce, there's a fine line. There's, there's a lot of ways you can get it. You can even get it on eBay. So um, it's, it's out there. But there is a link to Amazon from my website, which is TeresaJoyce.com. Okay. And, and I recommend uh, everybody pick it up. You know, like I said, I took the time and. Um, you know, sat down with it. And I, I just found myself, you know, quite often, you know, reading some of the words and then I'd have to put it down to just kind of emotionally absorb it. And then I would pick it up and read a little bit more and then I had to put it down. But I think everybody will, you know, just be uh, impressed with the woman that you are and uh, that you've come to be um, by reading this. And, and I think it will help a lot of people that have went through similar um you know, situations. It's just, it's a very powerful piece of work there. Very powerful piece of work. Teresa, we are at the uh, end of our hour here. I have uh, enjoyed, you know, listening to your strength. And uh, I mean, I just, you know, like I said, I commend you and uh, just a wonderful story there of, of where you started and where you are now. Just a beautiful thing. Um, my guest today has been Miss Teresa Joyce. Please, please visit her website, TeresaJoyce.com. Once again, Teresa, thank you so much for hanging out with me, and I wish you continued healing and uh, on your journey. Just just keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, Lana. It's been nice to talk to you. Likewise, dear, likewise. That is all for this week's show. I'll be back next week at the same time. Until then, remember when it comes to your dreams, the words can't and won't should never slow you down. There is always space to change and to grow. Don't be boxed in. Live your very best life. I am your host, Lana Reed, and I will see you all next week. 